0: On November 1st, 1700, Charles II of Spain dies, ending the 200-year-long line of Habsburg kings in Spain. The House of Habsburg was the family of kings, ruling over many powerful countries in Europe like Portugal, Hungary, Germany, Austria and Spain. Charles II had ruled over Spain for over 30 years, but he would not be remembered for his leadership or his charm. He would be remembered for his poor health, his grotesque appearance, and his feeble mind. Charles II was the product of many generations worth of inbreeding. His mother and father were uncle and niece. His grandparents were both first and second cousins. In fact, 9 out of the 11 total marriages that occurred among them during the 184 years they ruled Spain, from 1516 to 1700, were incestuous. And unfortunately, Charles II not only inherits the crown from his father and mother, but a whole host of genetic birth defects. He had an elongated skull and a prominent jaw that made it difficult to eat or drink a characteristic that would become known as a Habsburg jaw. The king was short, weak, mentally handicapped, suffered numerous digestive issues, and did not even speak until he was four years old. A French ambassador wrote, The Catholic king is so ugly as to cause fear, and he looks ill. Because Charles lived during a period of great superstition, His numerous deformities were attributed to the power of evil. People said he was cursed, which earned him the moniker El Hechizado, or The Bewitched. Adding more fuel to the superstition, Charles' final days were as strange as his body. He was losing his mind, becoming delirious. Before he died, one source said that he insisted on unearthing the corpses of his dead relatives, so he could see them. What may be more shocking is the report of an autopsy taken of the king's dead body. According to a book entitled Infermidades de los Reyes de España*, penned by Spanish writer Pedro Granthia, the physician who carried out the autopsy of the king's body reportedly noted that the corpse did not contain a single drop of blood, his heart was the size of a peppercorn, his lungs corroded, his intestines rotted and gangrenous. He had a single testicle, black as coal, and his head was full of water. Charles II was also sterile and without an air. Upon his death, the monarchs of Europe quickly sought control over Spain. Louis XIV of France decided to place his eldest son, a grandson of King Philip IV of Spain, on the throne. However, England and the Netherlands opposed the unification of France and Spain in this manner. But Charles II named Philip Duke of Anjou as his heir on his deathbed. Concerned about France's growing power, England, the Netherlands, and key German states banded together to oppose the French. Their goal was to dethrone the French Bourbon family and seize control of certain Spanish-held territories in the Netherlands and Italy. The War of Spanish Secession thus began in 1702 and would cause the outbreak of war among the American colonies for well over a decade. Known as Queen Anne's more Welcome to Historical USA where we discuss the people, places and events that made America. In last week's episode we discussed King William's War, and we talked about Madeleine de Vershear's and Hannah Destin's stories of survival on the American frontier. England has a new monarchy, and that means there is a new war. (laughs) In 1701, William II dies without an heir. To avoid dispute over who would assume the throne if no direct heir was apparent, Parliament passed the Act of Settlement in 1701. This basically excluded anyone who is Catholic or marries someone who is Catholic from inheriting the throne. The act also solidified the nearly 90-year union between Scotland and England with the reign of the House of Stuart, the monarchs of Scotland first before coming together to rule over England. So it was important that a Stuart remained on the throne Anne, James II's daughter would be crowned queen. As war breaks out in Europe, so too does war break out in North America. But unlike King William's war, this war is not solely focused in New England. The American colonies are not only warring with France this time, but they are warring with Spain. And just like King William's war, the Europeans will arm their native allies. There will be raids and battles from as far south in Spanish Florida to North in Acadia. When Queen Anne's war begins in 1702, the governor of Carolina, James Moore, wastes no time in leading a raid on the Spanish fort Castillo de San Marcos in St. Augustine, Florida. Moore was an Irishman, the son of one of the leaders of the Irish rebellion of 1641, and was said to have inherited his father's rebellious nature. Moore was the head of a political faction called the Goose Creek Men. He was a shrewd politician, and when he was elected governor in 1700, many of his political opponents believed that there were election irregularities. And though the legitimacy of his governorship was challenged, Moore remained. And he would lead 500 colonists and 300 of their native allies in an assault on Spanish Florida. He destroyed many Spanish missions, captured and killed many of the Mocama and Guayal native peoples who were allies of the Spanish. He destroyed crops and devastated the land around St. Augustine. He razed the town and set much of it on fire but Moore was unsuccessful at capturing the fort. Two years later, Moore would lead another expedition into Florida, this time with most of his forces made up of native allies, the Muskogee, Yamasee, and others. Their goal was to wipe out the Spanish Apalachee tribe. They massacred thousands, causing thousands more to flee into exile and captured dozens of Spaniards. Seventeen of whom they would burn alive. There is a debate among historians even today just how many of the Appalachian tribe was sold into slavery. Some historians believe it was as few as a hundred. Others believe it was anywhere between 2,000 and 4,000 people who were sold into the slave trade. Not many territories change hands in the South when it comes to Queen Anne's War but many of these native tribes never return and never recover. But in New England, the dispute over Acadia continued. The French still armed the Wabnaki Confederation and pushed them to conduct raids on English settlements. On February 29, 1704, a group of 200 Amnaki warriors and 50 Frenchmen assault Deerfield, Massachusetts resulting in one of the bloodiest battles of the war. Deerfield was a little frontier town, the furthest northwest of any community in Massachusetts, with only 300 residents. In May of 1703, Massachusetts Governor Joseph Dudley got word from the governor of New York, Viscount Cornbury, of a military force of 100 French and their native allies heading for Deerfield. Dudley replied by mobilizing 20 militiamen from Western Massachusetts to defend the little town. Dudley also warned the Connecticut governor, Fitz John Winthrop, and Colonel Samuel Partridge, a senior militia officer for Western Massachusetts, to warn them of the impending danger. Around that time, Partridge allegedly got a report about French and Indian forces from Quebec marching towards New England In response to the warnings, Winthrop dispatched 50 men to Deerfield in early August. The soldiers scouted the Deerfield region for two days and were returned to Connecticut after discovering no evidence of an impending invasion or any French or natives nearby. On October 8th, two Deerfield men, Zebediah Williams and John Nims, were attacked. Both guys were captured and transported to Canada. In reaction to the raid, Connecticut dispatched 16 more soldiers. After no additional threats or incidents of an assault, the troops from Connecticut and Massachusetts were pulled from Deerfield and returned home in early December. It wasn't until Partridge heard reports of Bennecook Indians attacking the towns of Berwick, Maine, Haverhill, Massachusetts and Exeter, New Hampshire in February that he finally deployed some more men to Deerfield the last of which arrived on February 25th. A few nights before the raid, some Deerfield residents reported hearing stomping noises near the community, but seeing no one there, which many locals interpreted as a terrible omen. I mean, this is the time when fear of witchcraft was at its height. According to Herbert Milton Sylvester in his book, Indian Wars of New England, he wrote, The historian in writing of this Deerfield massacre refers to a happening of supernatural interest, which for two or three evenings previous to the attack of the Indians, became a topic of curious questioning among the Deerfield people. The Reverend Solomon Stoddard alluded to it in these words. The people of Deerfield were strangely amazed by a trampling noise around the fort, as if it were besieged by Indians. There were old men in Deerfield who were led by this evidence to recall similar omens preceding the attack of Philip during King Philip's War, when from the clear sky came the sound of horse troops, the roar of artillery, the rattle of small arms, and the beating of drums to the charge. A troop of 50 Frenchmen and 200 native warriors reached the village on the night of February 28th, 1704 leaving their provisions in a neighboring meadow around 20 or 30 miles north of the town. They set up a cold camp approximately two miles from Deerfield and studied the people from a safe distance. Because the residents had been warned of an impending attack, they all retired to the village stockade that night while a guard maintained a vigil. But the guard fell asleep. And around 4 a.m., the intruders made their move. Over the river, on the ice, across a mile of meadowland, ghostly and white. Past the darkened houses at the north end of the street, right up to the stockade. The snow was piled hugely there. The drifts make walkways to the top of the fence. A vanguard of some 40 men climbed quickly over and drops down on the inside. A gate is open to admit the rest. The watch awakens, fires a warning shot, cries, arm, but too late. The attackers separate into smaller parties and immediately set upon breaking open doors and windows. The attackers actually intended to position themselves outside each home and at each gate when the attack began in an attempt to entrap the villagers. But this strategy failed when the warning shot was fired, and the residents became aware of their presence. As a result, the raiders were not ready when the battle started, and they did not get to the south gate in time to cut off the escape route. When the fighting started, the villagers sought to flee their homes by leaping out of windows or over rooftops, and many were able to escape the stockade through the south gate. One of the first houses attacked was that of Reverend John Williams and his family. According to Williams in a book, he later wrote about the experience called The Redeemed Captive Returning to Zion. He writes, On Tuesday, the 29th of February, 1704, not long before daybreak, the enemy came in like a flood upon us, our watch being unfaithful, An evil the awful effects of which, in the surprisal of our fort, should bespeak all watchmen to avoid, as they would not bring the charge of blood upon themselves. They came to my house in the beginning of the onset, and by their violent endeavor to break open doors and windows, with axes and hatches, awakened me out of sleep, on which I leapt out of bed, and running towards the door perceived the enemy making their entrance into the house. I called to awaken two soldiers in the chamber and returning toward my bedside for my arms. The enemy immediately broke into the room. William goes on to explain that the raiders murdered two of his children in front of him before eventually marching him and his wife and their remaining children out of the house. We were all carried out of the house for a march and saw many of the houses of my neighbors in flames, perceiving the whole fort, One house accepted to be taken. Who can tell what sorrows pierced our souls when we saw ourselves carried away from God's sanctuary? To go into a strange land exposed to so many trials, the journey being at least 300 miles we were to travel, the snow up to the knees, and we never inured to such hardships and fatigue, the place we were to be carried to, a popish country. Upon my parting from the town, they fired my house and barn. We were carried over the river to the foot of the mountain, about a mile from my house, where we found a great number of our Christian neighbors, men, women, and children, to the number of a 119, of which were afterward murdered by the way, and two starved to death. Only one house within the stockade managed to hold out against the raiders. The house of the militia leader, Sergeant Benone Steppens, which was attacked late in the raid. Although Steppens himself was killed in the fight, seven men and few women successfully defended the home. Samuel Partridge wrote, "'One house, Benone Steppens, they attacked later than some others, that those in it were well awakened, being seven men besides women and children, who stood stoutly to their arms, firing upon the enemy, and the enemy coming upon them, causing several of the enemy to fall, of which was one Frenchman, a gentleman to all appearance the enemy gave back they stove to fire the house but our men killed three or four indians in their attempt the enemy being numerous about the house poured much shot upon the house but the walls being filled with brick the force of the shot was repelled yet they killed said stebbins and wounded one man and one woman of which the survivors made no discovery of the assailants but with more than ordinary courage kept firing, having powder and ball sufficient in said house. Many of the villagers managed to hide from the raiders in the basement of their homes, but later died when the raiders set the house on fire. Around nine or 10 a.m., some of the attackers started leaving the stockade with their hostages and traveling north. Around the same time, a party of 30 to 40 militiamen from Hatterfield and Hadley arrived and began following the invaders after noticing smoke and flames on the horizon. The soldiers and raiders clashed in a meadow just north of Deerfield, and nine militiamen were killed, and many more were injured when they came into an ambush set by the attackers. The remaining troops then returned to Deerfield. The next day, another 250 troops gathered at Deerfield, but judged that chasing the invaders and rescuing the hostages was just not feasible. The captive people were forced to march 300 miles to Canada through heavy snow in the middle of winter. Those who were unable to keep up were killed. Several hostages fled during the first few days of the journey. But after the French told Reverend Williams to alert the other hostages that recaptured escapees would be tortured, there was no more escape attempts only 89 of the more than 100 captured villagers survived the trek to canada after arriving in canada the hostages were sold to the french who ransomed around 60 of them back to the english over a three-year period 36 deerfield prisoners most of whom were children and teens at the time of the raid stayed in canada permanently many marrying into french or native families. On March 18, 1704, Massachusetts governor Joseph Dudley commissioned Benjamin Church as a colonel and placed him in command of a troop to invade French villages in Acadia as vengeance for Deerfield. The expedition was methodically prepared by Church. He outlined the type of whaleboats that would be utilized in the attacks as well as the hatchets that his warriors would carry. Benjamin Church hired John Giles a former Malissette captive as his interpreter. Church captured hostages and claimed to have left Acadia with just five homes surviving. Church also went on to create a blockade around Port Royal. In the summer of 1707, English colonists attempted not once but twice to capture Port Royal, but was unsuccessful. Eventually in the autumn of 1709, the English government consented to support the colonists in their campaign and deployed five warships, manned by 400 Marines. Finally, on October 16, 1710, the English colonists took Port Royal, Nova Scotia, with the assistance of this new fleet of vessels, making it their most significant colonial victory of the war. In honor of the English Queen, Port Royal was renamed Annapolis, and Acadia was renamed Nova Scotia. When England, France, Spain, and the Dutch Republic signed the Treaty of Utrecht, the War of Spanish Secession came to an end. The treaty established Philip V, the grandson of Louis XIV, as King of Spain. It also caused France to cede portions of its territory in North America and the Caribbean to England, notably Newfoundland, Acadia, the Hudson Bay region of Northern Canada, and the West Indian island of St. Kitts. Spain was compelled to hand over the islands of Menorca and Gibraltar to England. Additionally, England was granted the Asiento contract, which allowed them exclusive rights to supply black slaves to Spain's American colonies at a pace of 4,800 a year for 30 years. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Next week, we're going to take a break from all these wars and we're going to talk about something else that is also happening at this time, a smallpox epidemic, which will actually be the first time we really see Benjamin Franklin enter the scene in Boston. So I hope you guys are excited for that one. I'm really excited to tell that story and Thank you so much for joining me. If you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe. And this Thursday at 8 p.m., right here on YouTube, I am so excited to have Eddie from History Unlimited as a guest on our bi weekly History Hour. History Hour is a series that we do live here on Historical USA. We talk to your favorite history content creators, authors, and historians give this video a thumbs up, and share with a friend. I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.